Welcome back to another bonus episode of This Week in the CLE, where we ask the lingering questions of the big stories of the week. This is separate from our regular podcast, where the reporters and editors of Cleveland.com analyze the week's news. That's published Thursday. And in the latest episode, we have some fiery conversations about potential secrecy in the Sherwin-Williams deal and Cuyahoga County's tax bill snafu. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn. Before I get to this week's questions, I want to correct something I said last week. In my questions about Dave Yost's long-running probe of Cuyahoga County, I said that we long ago received records showing that County Executive Armin Budish had committed $400,000 to solving a jail staffing crisis the minute he received an email from a budget officer about that crisis. That's not true. Budish is now telling us he committed that money the minute he learned of the crisis, but we are still awaiting any records that prove he did so. This does not change the main gist of last week's questions, which were, when is Attorney General Dave Yost going to either file charges or end this investigation? And why did Yost's prosecutors mete out very different treatment to an African-American and a white member of Budish's cabinet? That's a story I suspect we will be exploring more deeply quite soon. One of the biggest questions to arise from the news this week is what kind of computer system does Cuyahoga County's finance department have that cannot perform simple math? The question comes out of the county's bungling of a bunch of property tax bills, including mine. They left off some special assessments for streetlights and the like and had to send out new bills with corrected amounts. What they did not do for people who had already paid the first bill was give them the balance due. They told Cleveland.com this week that their computer cannot do that. The question is, why not? If taxpayers face a penalty for not paying their entire bill because the county bungled it, why isn't the county doing whatever it takes to help people get past that error? It's an example of poor public service involving one of the most basic functions of county government, collecting taxes. I was one of the lucky ones, I guess. I did not pay my bill before the balance was corrected online, so when I did pay, before I received the second bill, I paid the adjusted amount. I feel for my neighbors, particularly my elderly neighbors, who might be confused by this whole mess. I'd have thought that County Executive Armin Budish, who in his previous legal life provided help to seniors, would have the compassion to compel his finance office to provide all needed assistance here. The question is, why isn't he? When Ohio, Cuyahoga County, and Cleveland provide financial incentives to keep Sherwin-Williams from moving to another city, how much will we be able to find out about them? That's the big question after Cleveland and Cuyahoga County both hired law firms to do the negotiations. Having law firms do the work raises the possibility that both governments could shield ordinarily public records by claiming a lawyer-client privilege. Of course, any financial assistance would require a vote in the city and county councils, so we'll likely see the incentives that are provided. It's the work product that leads up to those incentives that we might not see. What did Sherwin-Williams originally request? 
What do the governments originally offer? What kind of bartering of the public's money takes place? The administrations of Mayor Frank Jackson and County Executive Armin Budish say they will provide what they can, but that's a far cry from the guarantee that Cleveland.com sought. We ask them to promise not to use the lawyer-client privilege exemption to shield documents. They would not do it. Mind you, not using that exemption does not compel them to reveal things like Sherwin-Williams trade secrets. Other exemptions exist for that. Given how hard both governments worked to keep you from finding out about the incredibly generous offers they made to Amazon, their assurances of transparency, without the guarantee we sought, seemed to lack meaning. A question that will grow louder over the next two months is whether anger about the state of things in Cleveland will cause city voters to take a step that serves to disenfranchise themselves. Voters will decide March 17th whether to reduce the size of Cleveland City Council from 17 to 9. This is the result of a citizen petition, not a recommendation from the government. Cleveland.com's Bob Higgs will publish a story January 21st that shows the purpose of this council always has been to be a conduit for residents and government. That's why it started with 33 council members. And that is how residents use this council. When they have a problem with high grass in the neighborhood, potholes, barking dogs, they call their council member. Reducing the number of council members will make that much harder to do, as each council member would be responsible for far more people. The campaign to reduce council is playing on the anger about the state of things. So the question is, will people who are fed up with the status quo and want to make a change vote against their own interests and reduce their voice in government? With youth violence out of control in Cuyahoga County, a good question to be answered is what can be done to make the state's juvenile prisons safe places that can rehabilitate teens before they become rampaging killers. The question arises from a U.S. Justice Department study that found Ohio's juvenile prisoners report the highest rate of sexual victimization in the nation. More than 15% of the approximate 450 juveniles behind bars in Ohio in 2018 reported being forced into sexual activity with another youth or a staff member, and that was just in the previous year. The way the juvenile system is supposed to work is that children who start down a criminal path go to juvenile court where judges look for paths that could rehabilitate them. But if youths sent to state facilities are being so horribly abused, is it any wonder that they are violent when they get released? Most of the juveniles who are arrested for the worst acts of violence have been in the juvenile system before. So the question is, when will the juvenile courts and the state system start doing whatever it takes to help these kids before they become monstrously violent? Here's a question for Ohio. When will legislators get so hungry for the money being made in nearby states on legal marijuana that they break down and try and make it legal here? Cleveland.com's Laura Hancock reported this week that one year into Ohio's medical marijuana program, it has seen $60 million in sales. But Michigan saw $10 million in sales in just six weeks after recreational marijuana was legalized late last year. 
Michigan officials believe marijuana sales will be $1 billion a year when the industry is fully formed. With Michigan collecting $1.6 million in taxes on the $10 million in sales, that state would see a huge windfall of around $160 million a year on sales of $1 billion. Ohio legislators could do a lot of things with an extra $160 million. Governor Mike DeWine has said he has no interest in legalizing recreational marijuana, and Ohio has a quite conservative legislature. But with a good bit of Michigan's $10 million in sales coming from Ohio, and with visions of dollar signs before their eyes, can Ohio legislators continue to resist the temptation? Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of This Week in the CLE from Cleveland.com. We'll be back Thursday with a new regular episode and next Saturday with another bonus episode of intriguing questions about the news. 